Welcome to the Rock Health Podcast, where we talk to investors, entrepreneurs, and healthcare stakeholders to get an inside take on the biggest trends in digital health. This podcast is brought to you by the The Rock Rock Health Health Team. Join us and build something useful. At Rock Health, we fund entrepreneurs working at the intersection of healthcare and technology and work alongside enterprise leaders making healthcare massively better. Today's episode is from a recent virtual roundtable with a group of health tech leaders working to reach patient populations often left behind the healthcare system. This important conversation has only become more pressing in light of COVID-19, given its disproportionate impact on vulnerable populations. Communities of color are hit hardest by COVID, and it's time for healthcare to show, not tell, that Black Lives Matter. We must move into action to promote health equity and weed out the systemic and individual racism that results in worse health outcomes for Black communities. This conversation will be focused on lessons learned and leveraging technology to care for high-risk, high-cost patients. Rock Health is proud to be an investor in Arene and Podometrics, and we're excited to have Health Tech for Medicaid's Adamika Arthur, a close friend of Rock Health, to lead this conversation. Adamika, John, and Yuna joined us live from their living rooms and home offices, children in the background and all, for an insightful conversation about their work. It's a real pleasure and an honor to be here, along with John and Yuna, to talk about this really important topic. I'm going to have John and Yuna introduce themselves first, and then I will um, introduce myself, and then we'll kick off the conversation. John, do you want to start? Thrilled to get a chance to be here, to be amongst amazing company. And uh, yeah, a little bit on me. I'm an anesthesiologist. And now over the past 20 years, I've spent time between um, care delivery, clinical research, and now leading uh, an enterprise for vulnerable populations. And but I grew up, my dad is a veteran. I grew up in the VA. And I just remember seeing all these patients who had maybe a list, missing a limb. I used to think that was from combat trauma. It turns out you know, years later, I realized that that's largely because of diabetes. It was something that was just dominated on me. You sometimes you spend entire days in the operating room doing nothing but amputations. And it was such a, I don't know, it was something we wanted to help solve. And we ended up founding in about 2011. I'll, I'll talk more about the company, what we do, but it's been a, an exciting journey to get here today. And hi, everyone. My name is uh, Yuna Kim. I am the CEO and one of the co-founders of Arene. I'm a pharmacist and health economist by training, and so our mission at Arene is to ensure that patients are on the safest and most effective medications for their conditions. And we do this through a virtual pharmacist platform that we've built that analyzes social, behavioral, clinical data to generate personalized care plans for patients with multiple chronic conditions and medications. Wonderful. My name is Adamika Arthur. I run an organization called Health Tech for Medicaid. Uh, We bring payers, providers, policymakers, entrepreneurs, and consumers, or people, together across the country to create disruption, address solutions, and change in innovation in Medicaid. And so we try really hard to promote the voices and inclusion of vulnerable populations, uh, not just Medicaid, as necessarily um, participants in the digitally driven healthcare market. I'm going to go ahead and kick off a bit of our conversation today. And by doing that, kind of trying to think about how do we define and achieve and and scale meaningful engagement and different populations. 
And so one of the things I'd like to start with, um, particularly in populations like veterans or Medicaid enrollees, engagement may not equal the number of times that an individual opens your app or clicks on a button. What does meaningful engagement mean to either one of you in your work? You know, diabetes is a massive problem and, and what probably isn't as well recognized, it wasn't until a New England Journal article came out a little bit ago, that a third of the cost we spend on diabetes is related to the lower extremity. Um, a single amputation can cost as much as 100K, and we see studies that uh, the five-year mortality is as high as 70%. Now, this is a devastating imagery. You lose your independence, you become reliant on the system, high rates of depression, immobility, right? We, we didn't want that to, no one should have to lose a limb to diabetes. We shouldn't still be at a civil war you know, if it's bad, you cut it off type of, uh, type of medicine. What we end up doing is we create this smart mat. It goes into a patient's home. We just ask users to step on it for 20 seconds a day, and then they go on with the rest of their life. And then we wrap around that uh, a nursing layer, care management, to help encourage good usage, to really partner with this patient, which, again, is going to come back to driving engagement. And then with that, if we see any issues that are concerning, we can connect them with the clinician at the exact moment that they need to to get the, escalate the care uh, that they need. So, yeah, meaningful engagement. It's, it's a couple of things. One is, I think you need to have a statistic that has a lot of rigor to it. I think that a lot of times when you see stats reported out, you might hear you know, a, a shot in time on what usage looks like. I think that the toughest way that industry should be held accountable to, to adherence, especially for populations, is are they using it for long periods of time? And for us, you want to see at one year how many percentage, you know, what percentage of your patients intention to treat. Everyone that gets enrolled, how many are still using the system? For us, it's over 75% which is six times higher than we've seen in any other um, published system for this particular population, right? A very uh, multiple comorbidities. And then the most important part is the ultimately the outcomes of that effects, right? If they don't use it, you get no value, but it's really, what is that value for us? We're starting to show early data coming out of the VA that we have essentially eliminated all major amputations, which is exciting because over half of our patients, when we get them already have some degree of partial foot amputation that we essentially eliminated graft product usage, which are 3K a pop often for weeks that they'll get this need. And of course, all of, most of the hospitalizations, I think we had one hospitalization in this early data set um, related to diabetic foot. That's about two thirds of the cost. Now that's non-peer review data. That's just early quality improvement data that's coming out of the VA, but it's been very exciting to see A, good engagement, B, what does that mean for the patient in the healthcare system? And for Irene, we're really an outcomes-focused company. So meaningful engagement means actually achieving outcomes, improvement in health, and reduction in total cost of care. So patients being on the wrong medications is actually the largest area of waste in our healthcare system. It's one in every six healthcare dollars. And we were fortunate enough to start off in a Medicaid population. So our first customer was a large state Medicaid Oklahoma Medicaid. And these are patients with life challenges, multiple chronic conditions on tens of medications. And so I heard this term actually um, from an investor. He called it the last mile. How do you achieve the last mile? So we have a platform that will generate these personalized care plans. How do you ensure that these care plans are actually implemented? And that to me is meaningful engagement. And the other, and in this, you know, Oklahoma population, we are actually able to show by getting patients on the right medications, we are able to reduce hospitalizations by 40%. So there's tremendous need in this population for better medication coverage and ensuring that they are in fact on the right medications for their conditions. 
And uh, Health Tech for Medicaid partners and works with many entrepreneurial companies. We have about 70 plus member companies. And I think one of the things that um, has resonated significantly in member engagement um, has really been about best understanding the populations that you're interested in serving as an entrepreneur. Sometimes for, for many companies that's arriving at a customer, you just mentioned Oklahoma Medicaid, you may have not thought that the Medicaid population was even a population you, you knew that you guys should be serving. And so it came to you by first customer. For other folks, it's a part of their mission. They, they, they come out the gate knowing that this is a population they want to serve. And for some people, it's the disease state itself that creates the momentum. You know, if you're in maternity mm-hmm. care and over 51% of the births in this country are, um, are Medicaid births, then that may be a driver um, so I think that the sense of meaningful engagement and having, you know, h- how do you engage in community participatory re- research? How do you allow your staff and your team, your board and others to actually um, see outside of like your preconceived notions around what life is um, for people, right? For consumers, mm-hmm. for patients, for recipients, um, but also like go into their homes and see what they're addressing and dealing with in their transportation needs or um, other kind of social determinant of health entrees. Uh, I want to move us a little bit around, you know, have you achieved meaningful engagement in, in a scalable way? And, and if so, what is the thing that really was important to your business that, that isn't scalable? So one of the very practical things that we built into our platform are customized algorithms. And so when we think about what we do and making medication-related recommendations, it has to be aligned with what's covered. And in the Medicaid population, that can be extremely complex. So the state of Oklahoma has a six prescription drug limit every month. That's hard for somebody with five chronic conditions. They're on um, many more than six medications. And then there's coverage restrictions um, and, there's, and there's ways to deal with that, like getting them on a 90-day supply so we can stagger uh, their prescription and, and prevent them from reaching their prescription limit. So what we did at Arene is we built a customized set of algorithms. We do this for every single plan. And um, it's aligned with the um, drug list that's covered by the insurance plan. We built in a number of combination drug algorithms as well. So when we detect that two medications can be combined into one, like two blood pressure medications taken as one pill, that reduces their chance of reaching that six prescription drug limit. Then furthermore, we also built algorithms around navigating members to programs and other resources. So again, the state has a waiver program where those with really high need can remove that prescription drug limit. So we have algorithms programmed around what are the requirements and we navigate the members appropriately to that that resource. So that's one way that we've been able to make it scalable. This allows then the clinicians, instead of looking through drug formularies and trying to figure out what's going on, that's all automatically generated through our system. The parts that are not scalable, however, are that human aspect and the human touch. So um, for instance, you know, when we were first getting started, our entire company went through motivational interviewing training. And we had a guy um, train us who was kind of like the father of telepharmacy. He built one of the first call centers around clinical pharmacy. And he looked at all of us in the room and he's like, you do not understand. You are not old. You are not ill. You are not disabled. And you are not poor. So focus on the patient priorities. Listen to what they have to say. Keep your values to yourself. And um, some of the other points he made is that 
talk as if you're holding that patient's hand and a smile can be heard through the phone. And I think these are all like points that we still um, really hold true and we train our staff on. And not only that, the reason why we built a platform that can automate so many things and make it easier on a clinician is so the clinician can actually spend the time counseling the patient. That's what the patient needs. They need the, the counseling and the time spent there. That's so exciting, by the way. Holy smokes. Um, <laughs> for, for us, I'll, I'll start with a little overly dramatic statement. I'm going to say telehealth is not scalable. And you know, the, the patient that we, we manage is, is probably the most complex, most costly patient within a health plan. Um, if there are patients who get diabetic foot ulcers, you, know, you typically have heart disease, COPD, uh, CHF. It's a very complex patient. And the very patient who needs telehealth the most is either the patient who doesn't have the equipment that we need to use it, or often has a lot of challenges in setting up those connections. And we're hearing over and over again, uh, almost like physician fatigue, or like it takes tw uh, 20 to 30 minutes to set up this connection. It requires this synchronous moment where they're both ready to go. And it's, it's really causing, we're hearing just a lot of problems in, in the health systems that we're working with because of it. And you know, for what we found out is that the way you can make that scalable um, is to actually have this layer where you can risk stratify an entire population. So for us, you have all these systems that we're a very one-to-many design. We're gonna manage all patients and or be monitoring them simultaneously so that the clinician doesn't have to. And we're finding it's just as important to know who to talk to and, and when, exactly when, yeah. as who you probably don't have to talk to. It makes their systems a lot more efficient. And we were, we were surprised, we'll probably talk about that a little bit later, but that was suddenly one of the big booms that we had was this need to get this telehealth infrastructure to make it quickly scalable. The same goes with even like the newer remote patient monitoring systems. You still have to crack that chart every single time, 20 minutes every month. You're still one-to-one. -one. We really have to move it past to do this. And these one-to-many type systems, I think are really changing the way we can do telehealth to make it scalable. I'm gonna have the same answer though, as we think about the parts of our system that aren't the same as like a, a SaaS type of a buildup it's that people side. We're building relationships here. The outcomes we're seeing well beyond even diabetes, reductions in, in heart attacks and, and CHF, all these things. It's because of that nursing layer that those people parts, and that's not something you want to just have infinitely scalable. You want a very high touch, exceptionally trained nurse to be able to be there to help drive care and really connect to the clinician the moment they need to. Yeah, and I think you both brought up really um, uniquely interesting pieces of this especially when you're looking at um, the diversity and, and changes as you look at government payers, whether it be the VA, Medicare, Medicaid, which has done you know, 56 different ways in this country, mm -hmm. uh, the Indian Health Service. And you know, how do you, you know, bust, adjust and work with um, what could be a difference in state, right? And, and a difference mm -hmm. in, um, in payer in that way. And so uh, I think it really does fundamentally boil down to how we best reach people. How do we build things that work for as many people as possible by best understanding the human experience, right? So I always use the, the public health example of you know, pedestrian crossing, right? It seems like a very simple thing, but when we cross the street, we don't often have to really think whether we're in a wheelchair or um, you know, we have a cane or a walker or like me, I have a three and a half year old, right? Most of our sidewalks have gradations. You know, some get to be really fancy bells and whistles where you've got the auditory control and the flashing lights and the, but ultimately, how can we build um, systems and health technology that really speak to meeting 
as many people's needs as possible versus narrowing our tools for just a specific population. But you brought up telehealth, and I think in the context here, it's really an important thing. You know, as we know, kind of regulatory and clinical environments have changed rapidly uh, due to COVID, really, right? Creating new terrain to navigate um, before kind of technologies can be adopted and adapted. You know, how are we, you know, how are we dealing with this current scenario? And what could we be doing um, as it pertains to telehealth, um, telemedicine, it's kind of a fascinating set of, of constructs, right? That we're dabbling in telemedicine to, to develop this digital strategy. I'm, I'm interested like in thinking about how healthcare organizations like plans and providers, even biopharma are in different phases of the digital transformation in their innovation journey. Some are beginning to use tools like telemedicine while others are much further along in the journey. And the adoption has changed tremendously as, um, policy has changed here recently in the last few weeks or months, depending on how long you've been on <laughs> your COVID journey. So do enterprises or government organizations want to work with you more now because they're looking for some sort of virtual care solution um, in the midst of this COVID pandemic? Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a dramatic boom that we saw. And hopefully at some point we could talk about like the design we had to do to be ready for that. We were very fortunate that the six months prior, we had built up a completely uh, uh, virtual system for it. And then when we're suddenly needed, gosh, it was, it was dramatic. That physician fatigue thing was so real. A hundred percent of doctors we talked to, they were all commenting on it. It was very, it was, it was fracturing their ability to give good care. They were moving now to this virtual model and they were frustrated in their, t the way, even though the patients were actually really enjoying that experience, it wasn't really readily available for the docs. And so suddenly this need for a, a layer that makes that uh, scalable, we, we saw a big boom. We even had health plans tell us that they were, they were putting us higher ranked than even the COVID um, initiatives, this need to quickly get, you, you can imagine what it did, like three major objectives had to happen because of COVID. First of all, our patient is the at highest risk of getting COVID-19. They hit every single one of the CDC um, parts, right? There are uh, typically morbidly obese, hypertension, diabetes, COPD, and further, like if, if they get the infection, our patient was the one that was taking all the ICU beds. It was the one that was like the most, we're gonna require mechanical ventilation. And we, for, on top of that, we had to space out all our preventative visits. We had to have this patient stay in the home and have a monitoring system to make sure that they're doing okay and to try to space it out so that the healthcare workers could be just so focused on COVID-19 because we were pulling all the specialists from pretty much every clinic to be able to deal with that. So it was suddenly this system where now they can handle the, their, these super complex patients and keep them in the home as well monitored as possible. I don't know, I can say we expected that that was going to happen, but we were very fortunate we had spent six months, even a year to build up the entire virtual infrastructure to allow for that. Yeah, and I think for Arain, we've also seen an uptick. And for us, it's actually, we're like a great facilitator of telemedicine because we have this platform that gives the clinician a full view of what's going on with that um, patient and what the needs are and care gaps. So we've heard from a lot of our provider groups that are using our system and, and clinicians that this has allowed them to continue to provide high quality care. And it has made that um, transition to virtual care more seamless. And we certainly also see a need, and we hear that directly from patients themselves who are now afraid to go outside because of COVID. So we've now built more customized algorithms identifying who needs to be set up with virtual visits, 
who is uh, not getting their chronic medications anymore because they're afraid to step outside and then we're connecting them to the right mail order pharmacies, um, the right resources to get access to a virtual visit. Yeah, I mean, we've heard from a, a plethora of companies that are really noticing the trend, whether it be they're trying to pivot or mm-hmm. um, they were lucky enough to do some pre-work, John, as you mentioned, um, around their product prior to COVID hitting. But like many digital companies and their investors are interested in reaching vulnerable populations, whether it be in the Medicaid market or not, but often lack the information and tools kind of required to do so, whether it be the content adaption or the necessary evaluation metrics to reach diverse audiences. I want to talk a little bit about health equity, if we can, like just a, a bit of a, a move to why we, do, why we do this work and why is this work important. I'm going to just start by saying at Health Tech for Medicaid, we kind of aim to better understand closing the innovation equity gap. We, we find ourselves um, and our, our mantra is kind of that we live at the, the space between health equity and tech equity. And where does that meet? We focus on that for the Medicaid population and obviously that's for safety in the health systems, payers and states and how we can best serve them. But I mean, I think that assessing the development of aligning the Medicaid ecosystem or vulnerable populations to accelerate digital innovation and health equity, supporting health you know, systems is kind of a, the goal and core principles of what we, we do at our organization. You know, any thoughts specifically on on health equity and in your experience as a company kind of addressing health equity concerns and issues? You know, for us, I think we know that if, you know, the highest need patients are in fact the the Medicaid, Medicare, we're in dual eligible populations, we're in Medicaid plans. And um, when thinking about that population, I think you have to think about health equity. We've heard the patient stories Um, We've heard about their life circumstances. I feel like it's such a privilege because it allows us to approach care from like a whole person care. So although we have like a clinical algorithms engine, it's evolved to to really think about social determinants of health and it's evolved to think about behavioral trends that we see. And so we've, it's not only customized algorithms, but we also have algorithms that probe and ask additional questions. Like, do you have trouble getting to the pharmacy to pick up your medications? Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have trouble reading hospital materials? And um, these are things that allow us to look at the patient as a whole and provide a broader sense of improving their life. I find it to be like a true privilege um, Mm -hmm. to be able to do that. And in terms of like equity and thinking about that, I think it's a mindset that you think about from the very start of designing your product. You have to listen constantly, then you have to think about this and always kind of think about how you're approaching different aspects of your product. And I was actually really proud of my team for just really thinking about this as a whole Black Lives Matter movement and starting proactive conversations. And one of our clinicians pointed out that, you know, we have a clinical algorithm that looks at, for example, testosterone and cardiovascular risk. And in that algorithm, it does take into account gender. And then now we're taking into account transgender as well, because it looks different in that population. And we want to consider just the details matter, um, where that person is coming from really matters. And I love the fact that down to the clinical algorithms, that's something that our team is thinking about. A couple of thoughts. One, there was a Kaiser Family Foundation paper that came out about maybe four months ago 
that said one of the single greatest markers of poor quality care is, is the diabetic amputation, right? It, things have to get so bad to the point that we're going to lose a limb for this case. There was an even more, probably one of the best reads I've, had, I've seen this entire year, a ProPublica article that came out maybe a week, two weeks ago that showed the work a vascular surgeon was doing in Mississippi to try to prevent amputations. And they laid out a map of where slavery was endemic and the map where amputations are endemic. It's the same map. It's, it's mind boggling that we're seeing such such inequality in access to care. And, and this is like this blazing stat that shows just how bad it is. Like these are the patients losing their limb, losing their independence, and we have to keep everyone on their own two feet. It has been one of the most amazing experiences now to be able to help. We're focusing right now on veterans and some of the uh, patients on the Atlantic coast um, you know, with poor access. And yet to show the data we have that we're essentially eliminating major amputations, even though they may have partial foot amputations you know, before us, and when you create that relationship that we're starting to see reductions in cardiac, pulmonary, all these other um, hard endpoints, in many ways, the healthcare system has failed this patient. It, we haven't found a way to really communicate or get services, or we don't even have the same levels of infrastructure in some of these areas where they just, these patients don't even have that fair shot to get the care that they need. And again, to, to get a chance to work on these, with these populations and get a chance to move the needle there has been probably the single most rewarding part we've had at, at Photometrics. So has your scope or approach changed since COVID-19, given that it really disproportionately affects low-income and communities of color? Yeah, for us, definitely. Actually, we work closely with our customers on um, helping them with their needs during COVID and identifying. So we, we do start with risk stratification and data and where patients may be disconnected from care because of COVID. And then we have customers that are offering food services. So we built in algorithms around connecting members to food during this time, delivery of medications, virtual visits. We have a client in New York, a lot of those mom and pop pharmacies closed. Um, we have a list of who those pharmacies are that remained open and who um, were closed. And we, we had other mail order services to allow patients to continue to get their chronic medications. Our scope has remained largely the same. It just, there was a sudden urgency, I think, to get out these systems to get out this sort of population risk stratification piece of it. So in that way, maybe we've seen a little bit of a shift in the importance for this type of a system. But um, yeah, I, I don't think the need for telehealth is going to go away. It's, it's going to be here for a long time. This patient's getting more complex. To keep care out of the hospital into the clinic and out of the clinic into the home has got to be the mantra for really all the care that we do right now. Yeah, I think you bring up a really important point to me, the push for health equity and what innovators can do whether it be entrepreneurs, investors, the academic community, providers and payers, from their vantage point, I always, you know, continue to remind people, and I have through this COVID pandemic, that really there are three fundamental things to think about in communities of color in general. Uh, one is that, you know, we do need to think about the social determinants of healthy whole person and the whole person care. What do folks need to, um, and, and we've had a deinvestment in our public health system for so long. And I think those cracks have shown, shown themselves uh, during the COVID pandemic. You know, the other is that there is unfair treatment um, in our systems of care, the, the structural constructs of the way healthcare is built. And we look at COVID, you know, just the availability of tests is a good example, or, um, you know, how, how certain populations have kind of back doors into the healthcare system. We have major systematic issues, right, that we have to address. And I think the 
The third thing, which is really important, it goes outside of just even vulnerable populations, um, which is that there are communities who have been dealing with the chronic stress of navigation, not only navigating mm-hmm. the healthcare system, but navigating life, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm a mother of two young, beautiful black boys, but when you have to worry about your family members leaving the house every day, there's stress that comes with that. You know, I hope to see that we really start to push for health equity in, in our conversations. But that brings to light for me a little bit around what lessons can we learn from partners or customers? And should we be thinking about changing, you know, our potential customers or pilot opportunities in light of populations that may be left behind? What partnerships have you guys been engaged with? And are you thinking about or having team conversations about how those might change or partnerships that haven't gone well and reflecting back on maybe what some of those barriers have been? I think when we first started off, we were obsessed with trying to get into the VA and help veterans. They, they have higher rates of diabetes than the general population, higher rates of amputation among patients with diabetes. They're very, very complex. They're it's a, a lot of even social elements, you know, just growing up with my dad, they had a very unique experience. And I was told by almost every VC, why are you going after the VA right now? <laughs> if you know one VA, you know one VA. That is, that is crazy that you do, <laughs> do that. And I think I was hammered for that quite a bit, but it was the right place to go, right? This is a patient who needed that help. It was a, and plus to think about how amazing the system is. If you can figure out the code, this is the potentially the world's largest integrated pair uh, it is this place that has extremely passionate people who care about the veterans. They are way out ahead in their use of technology. It was mm-hmm. the perfect partner for us. So though in the beginning, it was, it was tough because if you know one VA, you know one VA. Each one is its own city state and they have, there's no standardization. Mm-hmm. It's just the Wild West in, in some of those ways, but they are all- each They one say that about Medicaid so too. You know, once you've seen <laughs> one Medicaid program, you've seen one <laughs> Medicaid program. <laughs> That's true. And it's done 56 and, different ways, so good luck. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, it's not, they're just evolving to adapt care to their region. So it's like, you know, I'm not, I don't even want to pass judgment on that. But once you work with those clinicians, um, the innovation group, the VA central office people, the heads of podiatry, the heads of these people, and the key thing, if I were to just entrepreneurs out there, I think a lot of times you thrust your tech and solution onto them and you hope that they then use it. The real partnerships, you're going to learn how to build it to meet their needs. And we had to change quite a bit to fit perfectly into their workflow. And of course they had to adjust, right? We're moving them from treatment to prevention. That was a big, uh, big shift, but it's been an unbelievable partnership, both for the hardships we had in the beginning and now really getting a chance to move the needle. It's, it's been wonderful. You know, for us, like I think we see Medicaid plans is really, especially post COVID era, imagine how many more Medicaid enrollees there will be. So over 70 million beneficiaries to date in Medicaid. 77, <laughs> yeah, yep. <yeah>. Okay, 77. <laughs> and so there's going to be growing opportunity in, uh, certainly in that population post-COVID era. The lessons from being in the Medicaid population is how to approach things from whole care, how to personalize care. And these are lessons that we can translate to any population that we're working with because each patient's uh, unique. I mean, drug coverage is also difficult in the Medicare population. They're dealing with the donut hole and other um, restrictions and everybody has their own formulary. So we're able to translate the lessons learned, but we do see continued tremendous opportunity within the Medicaid space. 
are you guys thinking about how your partnerships or pilots will shift or change based upon, you know, what we've learned in these last 15 weeks or so, you know, how have your company's kind of norms or values potentially changed as well? Any thoughts on that? It certainly highlighted, we were already so committed to amputation as we start to realize that this is this such disparities. And if we want to move the needle on our problem, it suddenly means we need to organize in very specific communities. So working much more in the South. Um, we're working now with VA New Orleans. These are sites that are in regions that, you know, these are very high amputation rates. And these are amazing docs. When you pair fantastic clinicians with excellent data science, like we can do amazing things together. And just, it rallies the team. I dropped out of medicine to be able to do this. It was just, it's probably one of the most exciting periods for real mission that we get a chance to really try to help exactly the people who need it most. My gosh. Yeah, very much aligned with everything that John said. Um, And I think our perspective has broadened even further in terms of it doesn't just matter like what the plans resources are, but what are the community resources to help support these patients? And that those are things that, you know, we're now looking into also uh, researching for our customers in that community of vulnerable populations. What are the other job resources, food resources? How do we build that also into our product in some way so we can help support our, our populations? And I do think the other thing that we've changed is we've spent a little bit more time when you know, we have two models. One is SaaS-based, so we license our platform out to our clients who have their own clinical teams. And then others, we have also our own in-house clinical team. And so when we speak to patients ourselves and do the outreach, we've added a, a closing line. And we, we say to patients, we understand that this is a difficult time. If there's anything else that we can do to help you, please let us know. And that, that has actually been received very well, just to acknowledge that we understand and to acknowledge like what's going on in the world. Well, I think this is a galvanizing point, I hope, in health technology, you know, not only for companies that don't serve vulnerable populations at all, to remember that they're a part of the larger ecosystem. Um, You know, we're all here to make healthcare better through health technology. And so I hope to see more public-private partnerships. I hope to see more collaborations between companies that traditionally wouldn't work together. And I'd love to see companies have both investors, uh, entrepreneurs, academic institutions, plans, providers, and even states and the federal government to kind of start to think about what are our value systems as we start to work collectively together and that we all have a personal responsibility to care for our country. That health is the largest economic driver. If people are not healthy, they cannot contribute to society. And if you think of the numbers, and, and I am an epidemiologist, so it's a bit of an occupational hazard, but it's a third of our Americans, right? A third of our Americans that are in the quote vulnerable population bucket. However, you want to slice it, whether it's, you know, Medicaid and the 76.8 million people on Medicaid or the 22 and a half million people that should be on Medicaid, but aren't either due to fear or inability to fill out paperwork or immigration or whatever other needs. I mean, it's a third of our community and soon to be potentially more, but more to come on this issue. And hopefully we, we maintain this dialogue so Yuna, um, how do you get feedback from patients about how their personal health care is working, their treatments are working? How do you incorporate patient preferences, goals, as a way to deliver personalized care and trust? Right. So 
I think, you know, yeah, one of the first lessons learned in that motivational interviewing is focus on the patient's priorities. We have our own priorities when we approach that conversation. It may be about lowering their A1C, but they might have a different priority. They might be more concerned with getting food on the table. So these are all things I think that if you come from a place of empathy and understanding about that patient preference, then we know what's going on. We know when we sit down and work with a customer, we actually find out about all the programs and offerings they have as a plan or um, within the state. Actually, with the state of Oklahoma, for example, we did find out about everything else that was a resource from the government. And so we can help them address that priority of the patient. Then there's room to address the other need. Great. Since literacy and digital literacy are not evenly distributed, how do we first approach building digital-first solutions that remove rather than create new or additional barriers to care? This is an amazing question. Holy smokes. It's so hip to hold up in a room and they show the smartphone and they say, look, by whatever year, everyone's going to have one of these. You need to spend time in those populations. You need to spend time in their homes to see the types of technologies that they have. Maybe they have a smartphone Maybe it only has one or two apps. There's actually a lot of data on how much they would use that uh, to work with regularly. And I think if you're going to design, you really need to make sure that this system or this implication is going to have it. You need to, be able to impact as many patients as possible in that population. It's often detecting it that makes it very, very, very powerful. For example, we ended up, we went to all these support groups. We cut out blue foam from like camping mats, you know, you'd sleep on. And we had like socks and we had shoes and we had insoles and, <laughs> And we had mats. We had to take that type of approach to really figure out what was most usable for them. And I just, yeah, over and over again, I'll, I'll tell other entrepreneurs to you know, don't be in such a hurry to build an app. Know that problem, know that population, and then build exactly what they need as opposed to tech push. Here's something cool. Let me just give them an app that'll do something with it. I just think that that's a classic blunder. Similar to identifying important things that are not scalable. How do you approach rolling out to solutions to payers or other enterprises that represent small number of patients where the subset uh, for whom a given solution will be applicable is very small? So like the small N sample size. So one of the things I think we've learned, for example, you could go to self-insured employers, right? But those are largely working people. It's a very common place to go to, but they don't have many of my patients. My patients are whether through disability or by age, they're more Medicare. You know, you're not going to get a lot of our patients out of there. They may have a couple. So it really was making sure we focused on the, the, the types of accounts where there were a lot of our patients. Medicare Advantage firms, for example, the VA. These are wonderful places where now, you know, we know if we move the needle, we're really going to move the needle, both in terms of the care of their patient population, but potentially, you know, they're spending literally in the billions annually in direct payments to diabetic foot ulcers and, and, and wound care and you can have a major impact there, it's a good group to, to help. I do think there's always opportunities to expand within a payer. So we have started off sometimes with payers on smaller populations, like special needs populations. We are um, broader in terms of chronic conditions, so probably more patients than the ones that John is tackling. But still, I think showing good outcomes, and every payer wants to see what are the outcomes you can achieve in my population? Because my population is different. Um, and so being able to show that even in a small population has afforded us opportunity to then expand more broadly from there. Just actually to build on that, that, 
this sets you up, right? If they do not have enough patience so that they can rebuild a pilot if they're demanding it, so they can't get some sort of statistical clarity, then you don't want to leave those behind. Those are inpatients in need. But mm-hmm. my record would be go to those places where you have enough of your patients so you can get statistical signal so you can eventually come back to those patient populations where there maybe represent a smaller point, you know, part of that cohort. And also looking at those particular partnerships or those opportunities, you know, is there ways in which you can provide additional partnerships can come together to make the sample size large enough in which it's relevant and, and, and significant um, as well. The word infrastructure keeps coming up. What types of infrastructure are specifically needed to address health equity? And what do we need to prioritize? Is it broadband access, transportation, facilities? I think transportation is actually a huge one that's not well mm-hmm. recognized. Uh, I mean, that's a huge one right there. You know, if we take the veterans, they're going to be way out, you know, an enormous encatchment area for a VA medical center. And they often need their son or daughter to, to be the one that's going to get them to and from. And so they're not getting good preventative care because they can't get a car. I mean, talk yeah. about for us, if we want to partner up with a, your Uber or whatever, some sort, some sort of group that we can just ensure when they need to get in. I don't want them to worry about that. And to me, that's like a major piece of infrastructure is just transportation. It's not sexy, but yet it's critical to we're going to get good access. And again, ideally, we bring care to them as opposed to like, as soon as they're having a problem, that's when we want them to come to us. They're not going to have to move around. This is when they're actually in urgent need. We need to get the care to them as opposed to the other way around. I agree with the transportation point. We see that time and time and time again. And luckily, yeah, a lot of a lot of resources now for transportation, which is great to see because plans are recognizing that barrier. I think health disparities is like a symptom of a broader, much broader issue. And I think one way that we've identified an opportunity from an an ecosystem perspective is building um, more healthcare leaders who are minorities themselves. And I think that's really important because there's so much distrust in the system, right? So, and if you can go to a provider who understands where you're coming from, I think that can make a big impact. So we are working with a social enterprise, Arena's Gladio, to build content around pharmacy careers. Um, so it's a, a great organization. It has a career exploration platform. They advertise to community colleges and um, public school systems, and it allows us to show other communities who may not hear about pharmacy otherwise, what the potential careers in pharmacy are and what the opportunities are. For me, I I think it's also important to make sure we're all speaking the same language. So I always start with a real basics around health equity and what is health equity. You know, the the definition of health equity is really the attainment of the highest level of health for all people Mm -hmm. kind of at, at where they are, right? And in order to think about infrastructure, which to me is really the organizational structures and functions that support health equity. I think I probably come at a disadvantage of thinking first about the data, but I think it requires us to understand what is the problem that we're trying to solve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can make kind of knee-jerk guesstimations around what those things are. But in order to get the data, have data collection and stratification to identify what the inequities are, help set priorities and drive improvement activities. And I think that you guys have both brought up either due to the population you, your product specifically serves or a way to galvanize your team around a mission, because I think that's also another really important thing is how do we as a group get involved in things that are either upstream or downstream issues that can help outcomes, patient experience, and and the larger Mm -hmm. public health mission of health equity. 
that distrust is very real too. And I think a lot yeah. of it, like there's even studies that show doctors make different decisions based on the, the racial background. And I think we have to acknowledge that that distrust is real. We're not going to immediately change that. It's just by hoping to build this, you know, extra partnership with the patient. That's where, you know, virtual care management can, can help to try to build better trust, better access in these environments where they just, they haven't had the support they needed. Let's wrap this up by bringing together these things on a higher level. Can you talk about what you've learned through leading in this crisis? And not only COVID, I think hopefully our country is really starting to open its eyes a little bit around health equity and some of the the things that we've seen not only in COVID, but also in the Black Lives Matter movement as well. Well, certainly COVID was an interesting time to be running a company, right? There's a lot of companies up and there was like the early dark ages when everyone started to realize what was really going on. And, you know, companies are starting to cut costs back severely. Like they're like, this is a new phase. We don't know how long it's going to go on for. People are getting furloughed. People are letting go. And for us, like suddenly, you know, our engine for commercialization, you know, being in these clinics, the clinics were shut down. We're now boxed out of the place where, mm-hmm. you know, we would be trying to identify patients to help them. We had to figure out, how are we going to onboard patients in this completely virtual manner, which actually was great because we recognized there was a systematic bias. We were only helping the patients that already had good access to get into the clinic. By moving away from that, suddenly we can get to all the patients that weren't able to get to clinic. It was just the, to realize those changes. They were all so much for the better for the future of our company, for the future of the healthcare system. It was just this forcing function where suddenly we and probably every company had to figure out, you know, in this new era, you know, how are we going to better serve our, our patients and our mission? Great. Yeah, the biggest lesson I think for me is that the mission matters and the why of what you're doing especially matters during this time. And we're fortunate enough to like have a team at Arene that really believes in the mission and that's why they joined our organization. Why else would they be, you know, working day and night? And it's amazing to see. And then we have a saying at Arene that the impact matters more than the technology. So that saying has resonated more than ever during this time. At the end of the day, we will pivot our technology however we need to pivot it to actually get to impact. Ben Horowitz has a quote where he was saying, uh, so I'm stealing his genius, 30 years from now, the employees or even the leaders, you may not remember the feature of that device. You may not remember the care that you did Mm -hmm. or the outcomes, but you'll remember how it felt to be in that company, the culture that was there, why you were there, and just that experience of going through it, and he's crushed it there. That's probably the most important part is that, is that it's not necessarily the tech you're doing. It's just how the team is coming together and the why. Why are we here? And just doubling down on purpose. Yeah. I mean, for us, I think closing the innovation equity gap for vulnerable populations, you know, always been a card of our, our blood. But I think it's even more important to figure out how else can we work with others? How can we align? How can we make the ecosystem not specifically be about those of us who are in it to accelerate digital innovation and health equity, right? It's the right thing to do and um, how we address this and how it impacts populations. It falls more into who we are as humans and our humanity, uh, our contributions to how this pandemic plays out, how the story can end because we're not at the end of it yet. Sounds like we have a bit of work to do and figuring out how we can best come back together and galvanize around this particular topic. If you're an enterprise organization looking to gain access, insights, and visibility for your digital health initiatives, please reach out to us at partnerships at rockhealth.com.